Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, we're going to begin a new series today, but I'm going to share with you something I didn't share in the other services. And I'm not functioning optimally. And I realized it because I repeated myself in the third service. Um, My synapses are not working as well this morning. I I did a wedding in Lake Tahoe last night at 5.30. Hopped on red eye, came here, landed at 6.30 into Dulles. Got in my house at 7.30 and came here at 8.45 to preach. I ain't mad about that. That's my life. Doesn't sound wise, but that's my life. Um, But I'm giving you a disclaimer, not to make excuses, just to let you know, you can laugh twice if you want. (laughs) Ain't gonna hurt my feelings at all. I won't remember the first time I said whatever I said to you the second time. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 15. Casey, pass me my sermon. See? I'm telling you, it just ain't working this morning. It just is not working this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 10. The series we are starting is called Developing a Godly Identity. And the title of this message is Yielding to Grace. Yielding to Grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 10. Paul is writing, and he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Lord, help us as we study a couple of things Paul did here he acknowledged who he was and then he acknowledged what grace wrought Paul was very vulnerable not vulnerable in terms of weak with respect to ministry or something that an enemy might have as a leverage to get in his life but vulnerable in terms of transparency He was a man who didn't mind telling you exactly what he had been through. And at the risk of somehow you disqualifying him in your own mind as being someone legitimate enough to really share with you the truth. He doesn't puff himself up. He doesn't lead by his ministry accomplishments. In fact, when Paul boasts, he boasts about his weaknesses. And he calls himself a fool when he does it trying to convey to the church at Corinth in the second letter, in chapter 11, trying to give them a sense of he's worthy of their trust. And the last thing you want to do is show your stripes to prove you've got authority. You don't want to say, hey, trust me, believe in me, because I am all that. 
And yet they had thrown off Paul as a legitimate father and apostle and had adopted some others. And Paul is trying to, trying to, to, to wedge his way back in relationship to a people that he birthed. And he said, you might have a bunch of te teachers. I'm not mad at them, but you only have one daddy. I birthed you. You won't let me back in? And they are impressed with all these apostles' credentials and their standing and their eloquence. At which Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I know I'm not a great speaker, but mm, I got influence. I know what I'm talking about. And if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weakness. I'm not going to boast about my accomplishments. Day and night, out in the sea, three times shipwrecked, he said. Five times beaten with lashes by the Jews. Three times beaten with rods. Persecuted both inside and outside the church. He goes through everything that he'd been through and said, these are my credentials. I bear in my body, he says in Galatians, the marks of Christ. Now this is what the gospel costs. I don't know if they have these marks. He's saying that tongue-in-cheek, but that's the way he boasts about things through which he, he's been that really don't amount to progress, but just what it means for him to, to continue to be a real Christian and fulfill his ministry. And so he talks about how he's really not worthy of being an apostle. And he ends it by talking about grace. And it's really important that we yield to the level of grace that God desires us to receive. There are people that yield to the grace of salvation. And that's probably most of you who have understood who Jesus Christ is and that he was raised from the dead and died for your sins. And you've yielded to the grace which allows you to be saved because we are not saved by works but by grace so that no man can boast. Great. But have you yielded to the grace that forms character? Have you yielded to the grace that allows you to make great decisions, biblical decisions, wise decisions? Have you yielded to the grace that allows you to obey, that keeps you out of sin? Have you yielded to the grace that allows you to become a great minister, better than you were before? The grace that equips you so that you can now help others get right? Have you yielded to grace in every area of your life? This was the mark that Paul could say he had done. He had reached this level. And whatever level to which he'd come had all been attained by grace. But he first starts off by talking about what he was not. Or better, what he was. Same difference in this case. He says, I was one untimely born. And the word untimely in the Greek there means out of sync. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that his birth was somehow outside the will of God. We know God is sovereign and all that. But in his mind, it just didn't fit. See, Jesus was born somewhere around 4 B.C. Saul, that's what he was called then. He changed his name to Paul later. Saul was born somewhere around 5 A.D. Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead somewhere around 30 A.D. Saul was converted somewhere between 31 and 32 A.D., we believe. So here's a man who, though he was Christ Jr. in years, was a contemporary. He was sitting right there every time Jesus came to Jerusalem. 
He may have been in seminary. He hadn't come into the, the fullness of his ministry yet. And that Paul was a minister before he was a Christian. Meaning he was a Pharisee. And a Pharisee had both civic and religious authority. And so he was involved in ministry, just the wrong kind. The Pharisees were against Christianity. They were the ones that argued with Christ the most. And the ones, when you, when you do that, you get embarrassed the most too. I mean, he, 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 he slammed them. Every time they tried to catch him in something, it turned back on him, and they wound up being in the intellectual ditch. And so they were doubly mad at him. And they did everything they could to try to bring disrepute to Christ's ministry and discredit him. And although Paul had not come into full ministry then, because generally speaking, in Jewish society, you didn't come into the fullness of your ministry until you were 30. That's when you came. Uh, somewhere around that area. And if all things were right, Paul was somewhere in the neighborhood of mm, 26, someplace in there. When Christ was really coming into the fullness of his ministry, 25. And um, all the things that were necessary to align with Paul's uh, calling seemed to just be out of sync. And even if he did hang around Christ during the time of his ministry, which he probably heard many of the lessons... In Acts 23, verse 6, we see him giving his defense before Agrippa. And when he talks to Agrippa, who happens to be then the king of Israel, he says, I am the son of a Pharisee. So not only was he brought up in the school of the Pharisees to be a Pharisee, but he, his house was a house full of Pharisaical dialogue. He was nurtured in the Pharisee tradition. And so this was a man who seems to be led in the wrong direction when the right direction was there. Everything was just out of sync. And on top of that, he was not only going along with the Pharisees, he was going along with their philosophy to such a, an extent that he became one of the chief aggressors for their campaign to stamp out Christianity. And so he was gaining prowess and respect in the Pharisaical community to such an extent that they, they were looking at him as being one of the leaders. He was there. In fact, he was the official that approved Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr in the church. You couldn't just have a, a lynch mob go out and kill somebody in Jewish tradition. You had to have an official there to make it right. And Stephen was preaching the gospel. He was a deacon. And... Um, he had preached the gospel with such power that it convicted everybody who heard, except they didn't get saved. They got mad. <laughs> and instead of repenting and, and releasing themselves to the Spirit, they persecuted Stephen, picked up rocks and stoned him, took him outside the city, killed him. Well, you couldn't do that on your own. You had to have a religious official who approved of the execution. And at the end of chapter 7, it says all the people who did that laid their coats at the feet of Saul who would later become Paul, meaning you approve of us doing this. This was a man who was growing in capacity of what it meant to creatively persecute the church. Everything was out of sync. And he's, he calls himself the least of the apostles. And the word least there also means last. 
And indeed, he was last. There were 12. Judas committed suicide because he couldn't get over the grief that he brought to the entire world, indeed Christ, for turning him over and betraying him. But in Acts chapter 1, the disciples appoint somebody else named Matthias. And Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. And I don't have any problem. They chose lots. You know, they draw straws, if you will. That's how they got Matthias. I don't have a problem with that. Because God is in the lot. But there's something about Paul that recognizes, and I think he's trying to say this here, I should have been there. I should have been there. I was last. Now, the way Paul got saved is really interesting. We look at it in a religious way, and nothing wrong with that. A man on the way to Damascus with orders in his hand from Jerusalem to persecute the Christians who are in Damascus, to take them prisoner or to kill them or to confiscate their property or all of the above and more. And on the way to Damascus, whether he's riding on a horse or a donkey, we don't know. We know he did see a light in Acts chapter 9. This light was so bright that it blinded him and his companions. And then a voice came out of the light, knocked him on the ground, and the voice said, Saul, son of, Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, I don't know who you are. And the voice said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Oh, he, he, just, he just about went nuts. Says that his eyes were not just blinded from the light immediately as eyes would be. Temporarily, but he was blind. His other companions saw the light. They didn't go blind, but they didn't hear an audible voice. They heard sounds maybe, but not an audible voice. So they couldn't make out what was being said. But this wasn't an hallucinogenic moment where Paul somehow was, felt guilty over all the things he'd done and just fell into a trance and, and the guilt just overweighed him and psychosomatic things began to happen. It wasn't that because his companions saw the light. And then his companions had to lead him into Damascus where God told him, I'm sending you Ananias. And Ananias happened to be a believer in Damascus. And Ananias was told by God, there's a guy named Saul who's at a street called Straight. Go there Tell him what he must suffer for me, what I'm, what I'm calling him to do. And Ananias did what any of you all would do. Uh, you know, I've heard about this guy, Lord. I, I don't know if you have, but, but I heard about this dude. And like he like wants to kill me and, and take me to jail. And I, just FYI, did you know that? Because you're like sending me to him. He said, I've shown him your face. Oh, now, come on, Lord. Come on. You, why, why'd you have to do that? I mean, I'm incentivizing you. He knows who you are. You better go. Whether you stay here or not, he's got your picture. <laughs> Ananias shows up, leads him to Jesus. I mean, helps him understand exactly what he saw and experienced. Prays for him. The scales fall off his eyes. Now, it's been three days, though. Three days. So Paul's been blind, Saul, been blind three days. Now, that's an extraordinary experience. I don't know anybody who's gotten right like that. But I do know this. I know enough about God 
To be able to say that when the Lord has to give you an experience like that, you missed a whole lot of stuff beforehand. He's been trying to speak to you a long time before that happens. We look at Moses and the burning bush as something really just just spectacular and neat and wow, look at how God did it. But do you know before that, all God did was talk to people? With Noah, we don't see any supernatural signs. Noah, hey, could you build me a boat, please? Build me a boat. Abraham. Hey, Abraham, leave your family and come to the land I'm showing you. No, no burning bushes, no bright lights, nothing. Just get up, come on, let's go. Communication. With Moses, he had a burning bush. Why? Because I don't think he was trying to do the will of God. As evidenced by, by how he responded to the burning bush. Lord, can't you find somebody else? I'm just saying, like, I got a good job here. I've worked it out with my father-in-law. We got it set. I'm over all the shepherds. I'm piecing together stuff here that's not found in the Bible. Lord, I don't want to do this. Like, and he makes every excuse. So many excuses does he make that it says this. The anger of the Lord burned at him. You don't want that to ever be said about you. So you get the sense that God had been speaking to this. He'd been out there 80 years. Excuse me, 40 years in the wilderness. He's 80 years old now. 40 years. Knowing that he's got a destiny to lead the people. Knowing he's got something for which he was birthed. But running from it. And I know God had spoken to him. I just got this feeling because I know how God does stuff. When he has to do the extraordinary, you missed a lot. And please, don't let him circumstantially have to speak to you. If all of your life begins to fall apart and that's the only way he he, he can get you to get to him, he'll let that happen. He'd rather have you hear from a little black man on Sunday morning. That's what he'd rather have you do. He'd rather just have you open your Bible and read about what he wants you to do and you obey. That's what he'd rather have you do. He'd rather speak to you and guide you with his voice rather than discipline you through, through circumstance because you haven't been listening. Paul, Saul, probably wasn't listening. And he became the last rather than included in the 12. Because he wasn't listening. Though he was a contemporary of Christ, he was hearing other voices. The least, the last of the apostles. And then he says, I'm really unfit. I'm disqualified because I persecuted the church. I don't know that anybody could list a number of excuses that would automatically disqualify them from doing anything for God more than Paul. Not only was I untimely born and that I missed everything he said when he was in Jerusalem. Not only am I the last one because even after he said what he said, I didn't listen to it and hear it and obey it. I could have gone back and at least talked to Paul, talked to Peter. I didn't do any of that. And I'm last. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm way behind everything else that has happened. Thousands of people have been saved. Theology is being crafted. And I'm not in on the game. And now when I come down and try to tell them stuff God told me, they don't even believe me. They think I'm nuts for trying to reach these Gentiles. I got to convince them by the fruit, not by God's heart. 
Ah, if I'd been there in the beginning, this would have been different. And then he says, I persecuted the people that I'm trying to help. Those folks in Jerusalem, oh, I wanted them dead. I went around all over the world trying to figure out how to step out this thing. And yet God thought I was his best idea. It doesn't make any sense. And if you fit in the category of feeling unfit, if you think somehow you're unqualified to minister, you don't know enough, you've done so many bad things that surely God couldn't choose you to be his son or his daughter. He'd be embarrassed to, to identify with you because everybody's know, everybody's know what, what you did wrong. All folks, all your friends say, no, you're not him. I mean, some folk, but not him. Not her. If you feel like that's you, then all you got to do is refer to Paul because nobody was more unqualified, less credible of a past than him to be able to do what he was doing. And God loves to use people like that because when he does stuff through them, everybody says this. That's only God. (laughs) That is only God because them there, I know them. Only God could do that. They become wonderful trophies on the mantelpiece of history. God uses people that are, that are completely on the outs. Nobody would think would ever be the ones because then he gets so much glory from it. And he always takes the, 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 the unsuspecting. Paul says he, cho- he chose the, the foolish to confound the wise. He, 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 although I'm convinced that God likes smart Christians, I'm convinced of that. If you don't possess all the, the letters after your name, it's all right. If you don't have all the scriptures, it's all right. If you don't have all the experiences that you need that somehow makes you feel better about your qualifications, it's all right. Because you have him. And he's the one that brings you credibility. If you don't feel like you're good enough, it's because you aren't. But God is. And this is what makes it so great. Is that then you become commended by grace alone. By grace alone. And what does he say? I have a new identity. I'm not even the same guy. And this, is, this may be part of the reason he changed his name. He was Saul. And we don't know how it happened. We don't know why it happened. We have no explanation at all of why he became Paul. Maybe it was because Saul was more of a Jewish name and Paul was more of, had, had more of a Greek identity to it. I don't know. And he was trying to minister to the Greeks. That could be it. Or maybe he didn't want to associate with that fella, the guy who was the persecutor of the church. He wanted a new identity with his new identity. But we do know that he says, I am what I am only by grace only by grace and God wants to give you a brand new identity some of you don't even know who he is and you are defined by your past and your present circumstances more more than you are defined by the word and the way he does what he does doesn't have anything to do primarily with reform but it has everything to do with being transformed So it's not about 
making yourself better by doing better. It's about seeing God transform you from the inside out so that whatever you are on the inside comes out on the outside. If it's all about reform, sooner or later, the ugly you on the inside that is a sinner and really good at it will not be able to restrain itself by, by just good self-control on your part and the ugly is going to come out and manifest itself in your deeds. Reform is not enough, though reform is better than not being reformed. Transformation must happen on the inside. And this is why Jesus began to speak in terms of, of restarts, where he said to Nicodemus, it's not just enough to be educated, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee in John chapter 3. The, one of the most astute teachers in all of Jerusalem probably taught Saul. And he said, how can you, Jesus said, how can you be being a teacher not know these things about which I'm speaking? If you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. Everything about what Jesus wants to do in people's lives is to start over first. Transformation. To get down on the inside and change your heart, which will then change your soul. And no longer will you be defined by your past, what other people have said, your experiences, and what are the limitations of your own mind. Now you will be informed by what God says you are. And every time there is a roadblock to your progress, which reminds you of what you cannot be, you now have the resounding scriptures to be able to remind you a time and again that you are not what your past has made you. That you are born again. And your father now gets to redefine who you are and what you do and where you go. If you do not have that, the voices of the past and your present circumstances and the, your, your own limitations will be those voices that dominate who you are and what you do. And you will never be all that you should be or ever do all that you should do. God wants to give you a brand new identity. Paul says, I am what I am. All by grace. And grace is the package that God uses in order to help us be what we couldn't be without him and do what we couldn't do without him. It, it, in, in the grace package, you've got forgiveness. It allows you to have all your sins wiped out. Gone. Blotted. Remembered no more by God. And it's not because he develops amnesia. It's because he chooses not to define you that way anymore. As a failure, as one who made mistakes. He chooses to wipe all that out and let you have a brand new slate every time you repent and ask for forgiveness. That's beautiful. Aren't you glad you don't have a record before God? I mean, in, in America, if you, you commit crimes, you get, rec you get a record. They, can, they will look while the policeman is arresting you right there. Look on his computer. Say, oh, you got the, oh, God, we got warrants. We got a whole bunch. Look at that. Before God. No record. <laughs> Though you are a practiced criminal. You're really good at it. You've broken all the laws of God at one level or another. No record. <laughs> God chooses to wipe it all out. Forgiveness. Grace gives you empowerment to live the way you should. Grace is an instructor. In Titus it says the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness 
and to live sensibly, godly, and, and, and righteously in this present world. Grace teaches us. It's a great instructor. Grace will give you hope that you can actually be different than you are today and not be mired even though you are now born again and have a new identity not be mired in the, the next mistake you made because the enemy will beat you up about that okay you're going to heaven but you will re really never do anything here see you have too many things you got to overcome it'll never work just give up right now I'll let you go to heaven but, but stop just stop grace is that which takes you to another level on a regular basis. It's not just your effort. Your effort is included, but the grace of God is that which empowers you to get there. Paul says, there's nothing about my pedigree that could ever be confused with being qualified for this. I'm not, but I am what I am by grace. There's nothing about my life that could ever point to this. From the age of zero to 20, nothing about my occupational pursuits had ministry in it. Not one list, not one category had ministry checked off. I wanted to be everything but. As evidenced by the fact that people with whom I grew up cannot believe that I'm doing this. Brad, really? And you're successful, whatever success looks like. That's what they can't. Okay, you may be able to do it, but you weren't going to be good at it. Grace, grace. Paul says, I am what I am, a new identity. Secondly, he said the grace of God did not prove vain, meaning he was productive. It worked. It worked. That when he began to participate with the grace of God, productivity came up. That things began to, 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 to spring up for the kingdom that were beautiful that would not have otherwise. And God made him one of the most faithful and producing productive Christians ever. And then lastly, he said, the grace of God was that which allowed me to labor. Now, he said, I labored more than them all. And this guy planted more churches than any of the other apostles. And maybe all of them combined. He was amazing in his generation. And the only reason he did not plant more was that they executed him. The man died young, somewhere between 55, 58 he was just cresting. He was getting really good. And they chopped off his head. Rome didn't like him. But this is a man who for 25 years did more than most of the apostles of his day together. More than all their efforts. And when you think that possibly 10%, at least 10% of that time he was in jail. That's amazing. And he said, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not me. But the grace of God in me. I live tired. I haven't figured out the work-life balance. I don't know that it exists. When you figure it out, tell me. I'm just trying to do the will of God every day. And when I feel that I am a little bit more weary than I should be, oh, that's not time to give up. Generally speaking, for me, I... I have found out what's on the other side of tired. I'm not trying to use tired as a moment to say, ah, I identified now a moment where I am weary and I must stop. Generally speaking, I am wired to say, what, what does it look like on the other side? How do I find the grace of God after I found the end of me? 
When I can't continue any longer, what does it feel like to be empowered to do what I can't do on my own? There's something about the grace that allows you to live at another level of power that goes beyond your physical ability and taps into God's supernatural ability. I realize that you may serve in the church in a way that gets you way beyond your comfort level. Well, welcome to ministry. Welcome to productive service. This is not some manipulative moment from the pulpit to try to get you to serve longer and harder. I'm just trying to help you understand that anybody who serves God gets the privilege of being tired. Everybody does. And that is not an indication necessarily that you need to stop. But it is an indication always. God, what are you saying? Maybe you do need to take a break. I ain't mad at you. I'm happy about whatever you did that got you there. Thank you for your service. But there may be a moment for you to find out what's on the other side of tired. Paul said, not me, but the grace of God who labored in me. I worked harder than them all. He had a work ethic that was just monster in its orientation. This is what the grace of God allows you to do. And in the end, eke out more for the kingdom than anybody ever thought possible, including you. If I died today, now maybe my dreams are really small. I get that. But if I died today, I went to glory, I died really happy. Really happy. Because all I wanted to do was build a church big enough to make mama happy. Provide for my family. Make sure my kids were happy. That's all I wanted to do. I thought, okay, that would be success. I'm way past that. Again, my dreams were small. But I'd die happy. I never thought I'd be doing any of what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is not even a drop in the bucket to what I'm supposed to be doing. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't attained. I am still pressing for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I don't know what success looks like. I just get up every day trying to do what he told me to do. Not resting on any laurels, nothing of what I've done in terms of accomplishment. And whatever I've done in terms of accomplishment is probably pretty small. But I know this, that whatever happens, God gets all the glory for it. And I work really, really hard to make sure that I am pressing myself so that I can feel the grace of God in my labor. That you might be able to do the same would exponentially increase the productivity of this congregation. One thing you will, one constant message, other than read your Bible every day, one constant message you will hear interspliced in every sermon is that this is not about you being comfortable. It's not about you feeling good about your life. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit won't come to comfort you. But the term comfort in, in Greek is different than it is in English. Comfort in Greek means strengthen. Come alongside to support. It doesn't mean poor baby. Oh, I understand. That's how we view it in English. In the Greek, that's not what that means. Literally, some of your versions say not just comforter, but helper. That's a better word. It's, it's better that I go. If I don't, the helper will not come to you. You need help more than you need comfort. You need help. God wants to help you. 
to do more than you ever thought possible, to push you beyond grace. Yield to it and allow the Holy Spirit to do stuff that makes other people and you go, wow, wow. Let's pray.